What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 4 of the Education Research Reading Room. The podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. This week we're talking to Paul Weldon about two of his papers, The Teacher Workforce in Australia, Supply, Demand and Data Issues and Out-of-Field Teaching in Australian Secondary Schools. Paul is a Senior Research Fellow with the Australian Council for Education Research. He works on multiple different educational research programs and is commonly involved in program evaluation and the design, delivery and analysis of surveys. Through his work on the Staff in Australia's Schools surveys in 2010 and 2013, Paul developed a particular interest in the teacher workforce. He was a lead writer of the most recent Victorian Teacher Supply and Demand Report and led the recent Australian Education Union Victoria Workload Survey. This ERRR conversation went to some really interesting places that I hadn't anticipated, including a really in-depth examination of the 30% of teachers leave within the first three years and 50% within the first five years kind of quote that's often quoted in relation to retention of early career teachers. Paul brings his expertise to bear in response to this off-cited figure and we reveal some very surprising conclusions. So stick around for that. I'm very excited to announce that the podcast statistics tell me that the ERRR has recently been getting some great listenership from right across the globe, including the US, the UK, Canada, China, and even Vietnam. So with that in mind, I thought I'd shed some light on some of the acronyms that Paul mentions in the following interview. ABS. The ABS is the Australian Bureau of Statistics, the organisation that carries out the Australian Census. ATAR. ATAR stands for the Australian Tertiary Admission Rank and it is the normalised score that all Australian students receive upon graduation from year 12. That's our final year in Australia. In the following we mention ATAR scores in relation to how they're used as a selection criteria for teachers or for individuals hoping to go into teacher training courses. We talk about the impact of raising minimum ATAR scores on the teacher workforce. ATSL. ATSL is the Australian Institute for Teaching and School Leadership and is a peak body working on teacher professionalism and standards within Australia. BIT is the Victorian Institute of Teaching and is the organisation responsible for teacher registration in the Australian state of Victoria. CRT stands for Casual Relief Teacher. If that was too much to take in all in one go, I'll post up those acronyms in the show notes for reference of any listeners. As we step into the ERRR this week, I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation on whose land this podcast was recorded. I'd also like to pay my respects to Elders past, present, as well as to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening to this episode of the ERRR podcast. So without further ado, let's jump straight in to the ERRR. Thanks so much, Paul, for joining us in the ERRR. It's a pleasure. Um, the question we usually ask people to start off with is, if you're at a party and you meet someone and they ask you, G'day, Paul, what is it that you do? What's your answer? That's always an interesting one because most people's eyes glaze over. <laughs> um, I say I'm a researcher, uh, an education researcher. And then people say, well, what is that? Because it, it can span a number of different things. Um, 
So perhaps I can move on to your second question, which answers partly the first question, which is what is ACER and what do they do? Yeah, sure. Australian Council for Educational Research, where, where I work, is a, a not-for-profit, um, one of the oldest research establishments in Australia, um, started in 1930, yes. So it's been going for some, some time now. Probably best known, um, particularly among teachers, for testing. So we do all kinds of testing and assessment, both the, on the international stage, such as uh, PISA, TIMS, PEARLS, all the big international tests. But we also do a lot of assessment tests for teachers. Pat Maths would be, be one of those, English and, and many others, um, which we do as a service to schools. Um, on the research side of things, mostly we're project-based. So we tender for research primarily from governments, um, but really from anyone who, uh, who puts up a tender. Um, so it can be not-for-profits as well. Both here and internationally, we have offices in London, Jakarta, India, uh, Dubai, um, as well as most of the cities here in, here in Australia. So my role uh, as a researcher um, in the, the research arm, if you like, of ACR, we also have a publishing house. So there's a number of different areas that we have. My role is to undertake whatever research fits within my knowledge or skill area that happens to come up that we bid for and that we are successful in. So it can range. So qualitative research um, evaluations, for example, such as the evaluation of Teacher Australia. Staff in Australia School Survey, which is a national, uh, has been a national survey of teachers, workforce evaluations, again, mostly qualitative. Um, so really what I do depends on, on what's available and on what we win. How long have you been at ASA4? Uh, eight years. Yeah. Cool. So what, I'm, I'm curious, you're in education research, you've been doing it for eight years. What did you do before that? What was kind of your career progression to the point that you're at now? <laughs> um, I don't like to call it a career progression. Um, I, I think like many people um, post the baby boomer years, uh, it's relatively unusual to have a single or to stay in a single area particularly if, like me, you're, you're one of those kids who leave school not really knowing what they want to do. So in, in a nutshell, my career progressed from uh, trainee structural engineering and architectural technician uh, through working in homes for people with disabilities, wow. um, through driving trucks, through working for the Qantas Frequent Flyer Service Center, through spending two years in China, uh, teaching English uh, while my wife did a postdoc while also doing my PhD, which is actually in sociolinguistics. Then when I came back to Australia, I got work with um, Independent Schools Victoria. So working in, as a researcher for them uh, for three years um, and following that uh, into ACER. Got it. Of all those different jobs that you did over the years, I'm wondering... I'm particularly curious about the one with um, working with or living with people with special needs. Is that what you said or working? Working with uh, working. In, 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 a, in a home. In a home. So. so out of all those jobs, are there anything, any particular skills or attributes that you developed during those, that, those times that were really helping you in your education research at the moment or that you, you'll be able to pull on or better understand the education landscape from that? That's a good question. Nobody's ever asked that before. It's, it's interesting. Um, 
I've always been, I guess, I guess you'd define it as intellectual. One of those people, I mean, I did my PhD because I was interested, not because I ever thought I'd get a job out of it. Um, it was just something that I wanted to do. Probably the best reason to do a PhD, really. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, if you're going to stick, I mean, I, nowadays I tell people don't. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's a lot of work and you spend an awful lot of time second guessing yourself and thinking, what do I know? Um, that, that really is the, <laughs> the crux of a PhD. I think if you can get through the, to the end of it, um, you're doing quite well. Um, so really, well done. My, thank you. <laughs> so, I mean, my PhD was the biggest preparation for the kind of work I do now. My jobs really have given me life experience. And I think life experience in, in any form um, helps. It also helps you, the, I guess, the range of things I've done um, helps me connect uh, with people, um, not necessarily kind of there's none of that ivory tower and kind of looking at things from back out here you know having you know, worked with truck drivers and, and people learning disabilities and seeing the prejudice there um you know working with people who would have been called working class blue collar however you want to define it mm. quite often with a very different view on life um it, it does help mm. um in in engaging with people mm. fantastic Jumping into your article, I just wanted to start off, one of the real opening lines was, it's the demand for teachers depends upon the number of children in the population. And it's, it's kind of quite self-evident, but it's really, in a lot of ways, what drives uh, the paper. So I just wanted, if you wanted to give listeners a bit of a picture about what we expect to see in Australia in terms of student growth uh, over the next you know, period of time. That was certainly the, the basis of the paper it's interesting because that wasn't research that we'd done um that was freely available um from abs abs statistics from the census um so it, it was only when we were preparing for um a round table with um education authorities and and we went and looked um at, at what what was being suggested um as being and you, you can never in Obviously, um, it's a forecast. You can never know for sure beyond a certain point. Um, but we do have birth data. So certainly up until around 2020, 2022, three, that data already existed. We already knew who had been born in 2008 and, and before and, and or up to the census. Um, and therefore, we could see how many were going to come through. Mm. So it was that. I mean, clearly, there are a lot of other issues. There's the... Um, teacher rate teacher student ratio that has an impact um there's size of schools that has an impact um lots of different um things have an impact on how many teachers you need the fact that more kids are staying in schooling now through year 12 it's become more of a requirement more of an expectation all of those have an impact but clearly the largest one really is how many kids are there to teach and that was very obvious, um, as, as we showed in, in the charts, that there'd really been a, a drop for some time in most states. So I, th I think you'd said around about 9,000, a drop of about 9,000 students out of the, what is it, 70,000 or so in Victoria, I think. Over a 10-year period, it was just a very slow fade. 
And then all of a sudden, you've got a, a massive jump over the next few years, which will start to hit secondary schools mostly from 2018. So they're going to suddenly see um, a huge number of additional classes coming through from then for at least the next five to ten years. After that, we can't be sure. We think there'll continue to be a certain amount of growth. But at the moment, we're, we're in the middle of a bit of a spike. Yeah, right. So that's already been hitting primary schools. Yes, it's going through, and it's still happening. Okay. We've got a primary school teacher here, Anthony. Anthony, have you seen anything like this in primary schools? Based on my knowledge of sort of just the inner west of Melbourne, um, I know that that area particularly is seeing a lot of gentrification, and um, through that there is a lot of pressure on the local schools, and there are particular schools uh, which are already at capacity and kind of, you know, seeing um, portables being put in and covering up asphalt and this sort of thing. Um, I'm in one of those schools which has uh, seen a lot of change in recent recent years and we're also fortunate to have a lot of space on the ground to accommodate growth, um, which is why the government is obviously looking at our school as one of the kind of um, inner city satellites which can actually cope with this spike, which is which they're seeing as a result of uh, younger families, more children in the inner city um, and these sorts of increased pressures on the system. Where, where land prices all over the Mel- Melbourne, the, the the department can't physically, from what I gathered, just purchase pieces of land that can accommodate the schools, which is why there's a lot more growth in the further outer suburbs. Um, but you'd be much better advised on this than I would. <laughs> well, that's part of the issue. I think we actually mentioned um, in the report uh, that there is actually a need for um, the, the state governments to have a closer look because we could only show state-level growth. But there are pockets in Melbourne where there's decline. So it's, it's not the same everywhere. You, you've got some schools that are having to put multiple two-storey um, new buildings in, other schools that are closing. So th- there's a need at, at the state level um, to to look at where the growth areas are. Some of them are a little bit more obvious, the growth corridors, clearly. But again, in, in rural and regional areas, the chances are that there, there will be pockets of growth, but also considerable decline in some places. Um, and I can't really comment on where those might be because I've not, if the data exists, I haven't seen it. Yeah, right. So looking at the big picture, could you tell us how many kind of classrooms we're going to be seeing all new classes of students every year because I think that's potentially an easy way for listeners to think about it. Yes, that was what was in the report. I don't have it in front of me, but I think in Victoria it was it was over 300, something like 330 primary classrooms every year for 10 years. Wow. Um, on top of what we already have. Did you know what we've already got? We were sitting on roughly 450,000 um, from around 99 through to around about 2010, roughly. 2010 was the point at which we started to see a spike. This is in primary, um, as the kids born in approximately 2008, 2007, 2008, started to flow through into the system. So by 2015, um, we'd gone from around about 450,000 to 500,000. By around about 2020, we're looking at being at 550,000, which is the 100,000. Um, and then it gets a bit more difficult to tell, but if you follow the project, the B projection, the mid-term projection that the ABS put out, then by 2025, uh, you're looking at some 600,000 students, um, whereas, as I say, we had 450,000 students yeah, in 2010. Again, that's 
So it's it's a huge climb. It's a huge climb. That's incredible. Wow. There, there was um, someone said to me just last year, and I don't know how much truth there is in this, but they said, you know, um, Anthony, by the time that you're at the end of your career, schools in the inner city parts of Melbourne will be running shifts, and there'll be kind of the morning shift and the afternoon shift of schools just because of land and capacity and all these sorts of things based on forecasted growth. And that stuck with me. I don't, as I say, I don't know how much truth there is in it, but it's a definitely an, an interesting thought. It's certainly happening in some places in the world. I'm not aware of it happening in Australia. It might have been touted, but I'm not aware of it actually happening at this stage. Cool. Um, something that the paper didn't touch on, and I'm not sure if it's anything you've you've looked into, so that's fine. It's fine if that's not the case. But do you know if there is a historical precedent for this kind of rate of growth of school-aged children? No. I would have to say I don't. I don't know. I haven't specifically looked into it. I think... Um, obviously, Australia has had quite a number of points of immigration, um, so there have been people come in. Um, so we, we've had pop, we've always had population growth. This is the first I'm aware of that the, the growth comes largely from um, births as opposed to anything else. Um, but that's not I can't really comment um, on exactly what's happened historically. Yeah, no problem. I, I asked the question because I'm aware that it was, I, I believe we had a bit of growth in the 70s because that's the time that Gulf Whitlam started not only funding public public schools but also private schools and I think that was as a way of building school capacity as quickly as possible instead of just building more public schools, just give the privates a bit more money, let them take more students. So I was just thinking about kind of the policy implications for the next decade or so uh, or the next five years, or whatever it is, as we see this massive influx and the perhaps some hasty decisions that might be made on the policy front that could have you know big ramifications down the track, like those same decisions from the Whitlam government. Well, certainly um, the the report was written to to raise policy questions, although it was more more specifically aimed at teacher workforce than than at any other aspects of policy. Um, although we did note. Uh, at the time that things like bricks and mortar were potentially an issue. You can't, um, you know, independent schools, Catholic schools are not going to be necessarily built particularly quickly. They'll have some in the pipeline in certain areas, I'm sure. Um, but if once once they reach capacity, they, then they're not required to take any more. Whereas the government system has to take students. Um, so that starts to become an issue when they don't have room. So there, there are certain issues um, around that. I mean, one of the reasons that we've got some of the issues that we have is because one of the previous governments here in Victoria closed quite a few schools um, when we were having the downturn, when there were few, fewer children. Um, so th those kinds of policies um, don't necessarily take into account what might happen in the future. So we've been talking mostly about uh, demand side, but if we turn a little bit to the supply side, which is something the paper also addresses, uh, something I was interested to hear about was how in um, teacher supply from about 2012 has changed, and that's because the government policy uh, on funding for teacher training became uncapped. So is it my understanding, or is it true, that prior to that, we had a capped number of funded places for teacher training and following that, it, that was uncapped. And how did that change the work, the supply? Not just for teacher training, that was, that was blanket. Um, so there were capped Commonwealth places, I think, for most courses 
Um, so that would include nursing and, uh, and others. Um, but from 2012, the system changed and it was uncapped, um, and which basically allowed universities to cram in as many as they could get in. People working in some of those universities certainly saw that. Um, anecdotally, I, my own wife is a lecturer and, and she saw classes doubled as, as universities started to bring in more students. Uh, so it has workforce ramifications, of course, potentially quality ramifications, but I, I'm not really, that's, that's a matter really for the universities. But in terms of supply, I mean, it's, it's, it's always been the case really that supply and demand in, in the teacher workforce, um, they, they, they don't have anything to do with each other. So how many teachers we need isn't something that relates to how many teachers are being trained. And the, the obvious one would be primary. Primary teachers, it's, it's a relatively popular course and we're training way more, generally, way more primary teachers than we need. That doesn't necessarily mean there won't be shortages in some places because a lot of people don't want to uh, work in regional and rural areas. But certainly in metro areas, there's, there's a lot of primary teachers. So, of course, many of those who are trained are not teaching. Mm. Okay, so another change that um, is kind of been instigated by the government more recently that kind of is potentially or very likely going to have ramifications on teacher supply is the uh, minimum ATAR score that's just been introduced. So, I believe the policy is uh, in 2018... Uh, the minimum ATAR for teacher training is going to be 65 and that's going to move up a year later to 70. In in your paper, you talked about how 36% of teacher, te- people going to teacher training have an ATAR between 51 and 70. So, I mean, what would, what would you say about the impact this is going to have on the number of teachers we have in the future? What I would say is that some of the policies that are coming out, whatever you think of them in, in terms of their intent, uh, whether you think they'll work or not, in terms of raising quality, the the issue is that they're being made without any prior knowledge of what will happen. So another one, for example, is is that um, postgraduate um, teaching courses must now be two years. You can't have a one-year dip head anymore. We have no idea, in the end, what impact that will have on the number of teachers coming through. Um, I'm, my, my concern about that one, and, and again, I'm not talking about whether that was a good or a bad idea in terms of teacher quality. Um, I'm simply looking at it from a supply and demand perspective. And from that perspective, I wonder what impact that might have on career changes. Older people who want to, with a degree or equivalent knowledge, who want to move into teaching, but now must pay basically for a master's. What impact will that have? And it's the same with um, with this issue of, of ATAR. I think one of the ideas is to try and raise the um, uh, to raise the status of teaching, but there, there's there would be an argument for many that that's, that's going about it the wrong way. Um, you need to make it more not just the status of teaching, but people need to want to to do teaching. Um, it's often seen as, as something to do as a last resort, um, as not well paid, as a lot of work, um, all sorts of things along those lines. And just to raise the ATAR 
um, will not make it any more um, something that people would want to do. Uh, so if it discourages or prevents a number of people from going in, that also will have ramifications. It may raise quality. I'm, I'm not really willing to say either way whether that will be the case. But from a supply-demand perspective, it would seem to me that it will lower the number of people coming through. Uh, but we don't know in the end. Yeah, I mean, just anecdotally, that would definitely make sense. From my point of view, I went through um, you know, Melbourne Uni and went through with a lot of friends who were career changers, you know, in their 40s or even 50s. And they had kids and their partner was supporting their family. But it was just a year. So I remember having individual conversations with them and them saying, you know, we're, we're just like getting by on one income for one year because we know that after that I'll be able to get, you know, some work and a steady job and et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. Which is why um, courses equivalent to something like Teach for Australia um, may be, and, and I believe MGSE does something similar, um, where you, you do a certain amount of training but only six months, say, and then you get you can get into some work while continuing your study. May if if that's something that's being offered, would probably be of more interest to um, career changes. But two years, especially two years of a master's, where it's generally speaking relatively expensive for someone with a family um, and with a spouse um, who's going to have to find the money um, while. Uh, that their, their spouse is working starts to make it quite difficult, potentially. Yeah, touching on some key issues here. How to feel teaching, as as we look at it, uh, at least as far as data goes, is defined as someone who is teaching in a subject which they have not studied to generally to a beyond first year of university. Um, and haven't studied the pedagogical side. So, yeah. Right. So, I guess, for me, some of the interesting things that came out of that study were the differences in the number of uh, individuals teaching out of field uh, when we've observed different variables. For, for example, early career teachers versus more experienced teachers, or rural versus metro, high versus low SES, government and non-government, uh, etc. Were there anything... Uh, from those findings that particularly jumped out to you or was interesting to you? Yes. Um, I guess the obvious one and the one that really was the reason for writing the paper in the end, people talk about early career teachers quite a lot. There's some, there's some data that we don't really have a lot of. Um, for example, uh, the people talk about attrition. And generally speaking, they talk about it in quite emotive terms uh you know up to half of teachers in their first five years leave i don't actually think there's evidence for that um that doesn't mean that it's not not the case but there's no we we, we simply don't have evidence for it why is that why don't we have evidence like why can't we track teachers in that way uh i'm not saying we can't uh simply that we don't there's a number of points at which we could track. Uh, for example, we could track graduates. Universities could provide information on how many graduates are coming through and in what subjects they have graduated. 
so that we'd actually know how many math teachers we have, for example, or you know, who, who have actually got to the end of their degree and have graduated and therefore are capable of going and teaching. Starting point. So that would be a starting point. Um, that data is not collected um, at that level. Um, so in it, the, the Aitzel, um IT document does show you um, that the, the certain amount of data is collected. So they'll show you how many graduates there are. Um, some nine, 13,000, 13, I think, something like that per year. Really? Yes. Um, but there's no, there's no way that you can disaggregate that um, to be sure of how many primary and how many secondary you've got. Um, and in what subjects specifically they teach. Seems very strange that we can't do that. Well, <laughs> we can't. Not that we can't, it's just that no one's doing no, it. Yes, that's right. That, that, that data is not collected. And then the next stage, of course, um, at which we, we, we do have data, uh, to a certain extent at least, um, is the ATRA bodies. So, so the, the bodies that actually deal with um, registration of teachers. Uh, Victorian Institute of Teachers here in Victoria. Obviously, um, they register teachers. You have to be registered in order to teach, um, and that's in every sector. So that is another point at which we could collect data, and clearly that some of that data does exist. Exactly what they collect, I'm not sure, because it's not generally made public. Um, presumably because there is a, a requirement even before you start your degree that you must, or if you do a postgrad teaching course, you must be able to, to show that what you did at university matches. You know, so if you want to be a math teacher, you must have done a, a given amount of maths. Um, if you're an engineer, you can't teach maths, for example. So presumably, when you graduate um, and register, there must be something there that shows that you actually do have the, the required qualifications. You're, you're kind of differentiating between uh, registering with VIT as a teacher or as a maths teacher. Yes, I mean, that there is no differentiation in, in terms of registration. No school will ask whether you're, a, you know, a registered um, middle years teacher or registered teacher of chemistry or whatever it might be. They simply need to know that you're a registered teacher. But I assume, nonetheless, that um, the VIT would actually collect that data. There must be a field um, which says that you've got a degree in X, Y, or Z. I don't remember ticking that box, but potentially, potentially. Which may well mean in that we case that it collected. isn't collected. Um, I suspect it isn't, or if it is, it's not collected in a way that would allow it to be provided so that we can actually have a look at, at the teacher workforce at that level. And then beyond that, I remember you asking, uh, one of your questions is about the different, the fact that there's out of field teachers in subjects, but there are also a huge number of teachers um, who can teach that subject, but are not. If specialized as a, what would be a language teacher maybe? No, we've got lots of language uh, needs. What's an area where we see the art teachers maybe? Uh, it pretty much in, in every in every subject, including the ones where we haven't got enough people, we've got people who can teach it and are not. The reason for that, the main reason really, is that here in Australia, pretty much every teacher 
in a secondary school has two specializations. Most, most people have two. So that immediately means that when you're looking at the data, if you've got, say, 100 teachers who specialize in maths and chemistry, that actually means the data says you have 200 teachers. You have 100 math teachers and 100 chemistry teachers. Clearly, if 50 of those teachers are teaching maths and 50 of those teachers are teaching chemistry, then you've got 50 teachers who are not teaching maths but are capable of teaching math. And at the same time, if, if that teacher is teaching half their load maths and half their load chemistry, well, they're the equivalent of a half-time maths teacher. Um, so that, that's an issue. Of course, we have hundreds of people who can teach something, and currently, in the snapshot where we take the survey, they are not teaching that subject. Um, but because, and So that's part of it. The other part is distribution. We've got a lot of small schools, um, which is why out-of-field teaching, one of the reasons out-of-field teaching happens, that there aren't enough. The number of teachers for the number of students means that you're never going to have enough teachers. So, you know, you may well have four or five math teachers, but you've still got that year seven class that doesn't have a teacher. So you have to give somebody that class so your PE teacher gets to teach math. Is there also the variable that there's a lot of registered teachers who are just simply not teaching as well? They might be coming in and out of the system doing CRT work or maintaining the minimum requirements just as a just-in-case just sort of scenario, but it skews the, the actual figures. Yes, once again, cases. we don't... We have... We, we know how many registered teachers we've got, um, but we don't know how many of those um, necessarily want to teach um, or are in, in, in a school as opposed to tutoring or, or, or in, in other areas, um, potentially. Was that something that, would those people, those people doing CRT work, would they have been picked up in your survey at all? No. That's um, what I thought, yeah. So that wouldn't have been skewing the data. No, no. Not, in, not in, in, in terms of collecting, the, the data I have doesn't include CRTs, no. But in terms of trying to figure out the pool of teachers that we have, you could go to the VIT, but you'd still have a problem because you still wouldn't know how many of those teachers um, are working time or part-time. And then I guess the, presumably the other big um, variable and issue is that every state operates differently and every state might be collecting different data um, and then marrying it up would be a huge challenge as well. Yes, um, yes, that was tried some years ago with a certain amount of success. Um, the, the teacher workforce data set was created, um, but once again, it was mostly a snapshot, and I don't know to what extent it's actually continued. I know Aitzel and others are looking at trying to continue some of this. The Staff in Australia School Survey, which ran in 2007, 10, and 13, has not run since, um, but... Um, the government and ASL are certainly looking at means of collecting additional data. So. I'd like to backtrack to that to that thread of the the quote about thirty percent of teachers leaving within the first three years and fifty percent in the first five years or whatever it is. Um, so we talked about that we've got that first initial time point that we do have some kind of data for. We've 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 been talking talking kind of around the issue, but then at what point do we lose, like, for people to quote that this number of teachers or this percentage of teachers drops off in this year or this percentage in this year, how are, they, how are we measuring this drop-off point? We, we can't. We don't. Um, 
and there's a lot of issues around that. In fact, the the numbers that you hear, thirty to fifty percent, don't appear to be Australian at all. Um, so the the assumption is that um, having looked at some research in in the US and the UK and and other places that are broadly similar, and um, that it must be the same here. There's no data that I can find. Um, I mean, if someone knows that where there is some, um, I'd be more than willing to be corrected. But as far as I'm aware, for all that those numbers get bandied about regularly, um, they don't exist in Australia. Do we have a proxy of some description for it? No. So we're literally just quoting other... Yes, we, ha- we have no data. One of the reasons uh, that, that, that there's a number of ways that you could potentially look at it, but it, it is difficult I'm, to start with. A lot of early career teachers are on contracts. Contracts end and they may be out of work for a little while and then get another contract. That's not followed through necessarily in, in the system. So if you went and looked at the teacher um, supply and demand report for Victoria, which I had a hand in, in writing the most recent one, what they'll give you is the, the overall um, leaving rate across all permanent teachers, which is around 4%, nothing like 30 to 50%. But that doesn't include contract work, so which a lot of early career teachers tend to be on. So we, we have no way of finding out what's going on with those teachers because they're on contract. One of the other issues, of course, is we have three sectors so if a teacher leaves a government school and goes to a Catholic school, there's no way that we can follow them as far as the government's concerned. They've left teaching, but they haven't. One of the other issues we have is that we have a large female workforce. Um, for a lot of um, female teachers within their first five years, they may well be going on maternity leave, which will be recorded because they're still working, but may then choose not to come back for a year or two and then return. Um, and again, how would you record those? Now, there is a way to do it, and that it uh, partially, um, and that would be through registration, but the registration body would have to, uh, re-registration would have to ask the question, you'd have to basically re-register every year, or every two years or something, and you'd have to ask them what they were doing. You know, are you actually currently teaching? How much teaching are you doing? Are you intending to come back? come back to teaching if you're not teaching at the moment, those kinds of things. So it is a difficult one to to be certain about, but I mean, another way of doing it would be to follow a cohort um, in a longitudinal survey, for example. So there are ways to do it, um, but we are not doing anything, to my knowledge, at the moment. Mm. If you had to take a punt, fair enough if you'd say, if you, if you want to say, oh, I've got no idea, but if you did want to take a punt, about number of percentage of teachers leaving in the first three or five years, what would you what would you say? I've had a look at recent data from the UK. Once again, they don't necessarily consider everybody, um, but that they actually show who's left the government system every year from uh, in a ten year. So you know, they they look at people who started in say 2008, and how many left in 9, 10, 11, 12, all the way through to now. And I don't think the five-year figure was higher than 20%. Leaving, yeah, right. Um, 
and I think that covered a fair amount. Um, it, it's not. I don't think there's such an issue with contract. Um, but again, because their system is a bit different, um, I, I can't be sure, and I certainly can't be sure that that has any bearing necessarily on the Australian system. I mean, the other issue in the Australian system, particularly for primary teachers, is, and again, it's hard to know exactly why. There's a lot of contract work, and part of that will be for things like maternity leave. I mean, we, it's a good thing. You know, a teacher who goes on maternity leave is assured of getting their job back. But because of that, someone needs to be on a contract to fill that position. So I'm, I'm sure that's one of the reasons why there's contracts. But there will be other reasons uh, as well, um, budget reasons and, and other things for schools. Um, SIAS, the Staff in Australia Schools survey, tells us that on the whole, um, if you stick it four or five years and on, you're likely to end up with permanent position because we, uh, while we didn't go to CRTs on the whole, we certainly went to um, people who are working more than one day a week. So if you're only working a week, we weren't interested in you. But if you're working a month, um, or a term, then you got to fill in the survey. So we had lots of people fill in the survey who were on contract. And the way it worked was that roughly, I think, 60 to 80% of teachers in their first year were on contract. But by year five, mm. only about 10 to 15% were on contract. So th there's a clear progression that the the teachers who'd been teaching for by the time they'd been teaching for five years were more likely across Australia to to be on in an ongoing or permanent position but again I suspect a lot of people yeah may well struggle at the early point just to find work particularly in the primary sector because we've got too many teachers so you know you've got lots of teachers applying for the same jobs can't get a job get a job maybe for six months or a year and then can't get the next one um, and I suspect that some of the reason for dropping out is simply because they need to find work somewhere else clearly I think there are also I mean the, the out of field issue yeah. um, for secondary teachers to my mind shows that schools still don't take mentoring and support seriously um, you know if, if you're if you're saying to your young generally your youngest and certainly your least experienced teacher will give you this class in a subject you know nothing about um, as a new teacher that says to me um, that, that there's a pecking order the, 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 power. the more experienced teachers get the better classes and people who can't say no, who can least afford to say no but also are perhaps the newest at teaching and, and the least sure of what they're doing they're the ones who get you know, the maths class on a Friday afternoon that nobody else wants. I suspect that's what's happening in some cases, and clearly that's not going to help um, early career teachers. So the AEU um, released their report recently, which you were involved in, um, and I was just kind of wondering what you think was the most important findings of that report that is most likely to have an impact on potential future EBAs and policy, if that's something you can even comment on. <laughs> I'm willing to comment, but not... At this point, Paul indicated that he was happy to answer Anthony's question, but that he'd rather do it uh, off record. Uh, we had a really interesting conversation for about 15 to 20 minutes, 
And following that return to the normal interview, I guess this is a really great opportunity uh, for me to mention the ERRR podcast does have a live event that's held in Melbourne. And if you are an educator or interest, interested in education, I'd really encourage you to sign up and come along to the live events. So uh, if anything like this happens in future and one of our authors would like to make a comment off the record, you're really able to be a part of that too and get the inside scoop. All right, now back to the usual episode. Yeah, in your paper, the statistics that you quoted were 37% of early career teachers are teaching out of field, whereas it's only 25% of teachers who are more experienced. So I think it's that dif- that differential is really key when we're thinking about how to better support our early career teachers. Yes, and um, that particular stat came out of the Staff in Australia School survey. So arguably it doesn't take into account people's comfort level. So it's entirely possible that some teachers would say, I asked to do that. I'm quite comfortable with it. So when we did the union survey, we asked about out-of-field teaching, but we asked a different question because we couldn't actually ask people to indicate what qualifications they had and then what they were teaching because Staff in Australia School Survey is big and takes a long time. What we did was we simply asked them um, whether there was anything of the key learning areas within those, anything that they were teaching, which I can't remember how we worded it, but basically said that you're you're not, it's not your specialization and you're not comfortable teaching it. And we got almost exactly the same. So there, there was a clear difference um, and between early career teachers and older teachers in in the number who were teaching out of field. We also noted um, that it was the same for those by length of time at school. So that included older teachers who'd moved to a new school. They also were more likely to be teaching out of field if they'd not been in the school for very long. Pecking order in the school. Pecking order in the school. Yeah, right. All right. Well, we might just jump into the, a few kind of closing questions if, if that works for you, Paul. Sure. Okay, great. Well, the first question is, uh, it was great to hear that you, you, you spent a couple of years in, in China teaching English. Um, could you just maybe take us back to that time? Talk about maybe some of the challenges that, that you had in that first year of teaching and what advice, if you could go back in time and visit that uh, Mr. Weldon in China, what advice would you give him in his first year of teaching? <laughs> um, I'm not sure that that one's actually going to work very well. Um, I might have a little bit of advice potentially for early career teachers given my current role and some of the things that I know from that role. Um, for myself, I would say get some training. <laughs> uh, w- when I went to China, I didn't, I didn't go to teach. Um, uh, my wife was doing postdoctoral studies uh, and I went along for the ride, really. Uh, we were there for two years. But basically, in order to get a visa to work in China, you basically had to teach. Uh, that's the easiest way. To, to get in so that was the visa we were on we that's what we had to do and um, so unlike most of the other expats who were teachers um we were only part-time teachers um we, we were one teacher between the two of us 
Liz was doing postdoc, uh, and I ended up as the um, English language editor of their journal, um, Geosciences Journal in English, um, which was far more up my street, really. But I think like all early career teachers, um, I certainly, we, we encountered things that we didn't expect. I, I, I still remember walking in having been told, as far as we understood, um, that we were going to have four lots of kind of 40-minute sessions with, with one, with different, four different groups, uh, only to discover at the end of the first 40 minutes that, um, no, there was only the one group and we had them for four hours. <laughs> for which we most certainly hadn't planned and quite frankly teaching a language for four hours straight um, we also had a room that that had furniture that was basically desks all facing forward and all uh, screwed down and a podium which again I mean even without really any training that's not how you teach a language you, you, you can't just stand up and and you've got to get them to speak you've got to do the conversation you, you can give them some hints and tips and grammar kind of sitting up the front but it doesn't really work that way the other thing was the massively wide range of 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 abilities we had people whose sole ability was to be able to say basketball um right up to virtually fluent speakers um impressively fluent really we also discovered that there were quite a lot of the older people there um, because we were the, the, we were teaching a, a bunch of PhDs in China. If you want to do a PhD, you have to learn English. Um, same with masters, to a certain level, quite a high level, in fact. And there were quite a number of you know, older men, particularly um, in our PhD classes. And if you wrote something on the board, they understood it. Their grasp of written English, generally speaking, was excellent. They couldn't understand a word we said, which again I'd not really come across before. So how to how to deal with that um, was was interesting, which is all anecdotal and says absolutely nothing about um, how other teachers uh, in their first year might go. But one of the things I think I'd like to say, um, based on the what I know to be the current situation, is if if you want to teach, stick it out. I think one of the issues that is clear from the data we have is that there's a lot of contract work out there and that's frustrating um, and I suspect a lot of teachers drop out because of that but the Staff in Australia School Survey both in 2010 and 2013 showed us that by the fifth year of teaching most teachers were on ongoing or permanent work so it does happen for most and yes, there's 10 or 15%, and I know that different people are going to experience different situations. Um, but for the vast majority, you've been teaching for five years, you're probably in an ongoing position. So it's, it's worth sticking it out. Stick it out. Cool. So moving from Paul the teacher to Paul the student now, uh, I was wondering if there was any, any particular teacher that you've encountered throughout your years that had a, had a profound impact on your life. Not really, I have to say, um, and I think this is one of the one of the potential issues around um, quality and the status of teaching. Um, but I can't speak for Australia because I was uh, uh, my my 
experience of teachers largely has been in the UK, where, where I, I lived until I was in my 20s. I went to a low SES school, a uh, school in a low SES area, as we would call them now. Didn't have the best reputation. It, it was cool to be streetwise. It was definitely not cool to be clever. I mean, as an example, uh, throughout my entire schooling in secondary school, I didn't have a math teacher for more than a term. Whoa. Different math teacher every term. Was there any kind of connection between one term and the next? No, there wasn't. Did the teachers know what we could do or didn't know? No, they didn't. Was there a curriculum? I have no idea. <laughs> um, and I'm afraid that was the case. If there were some good teachers, um, the teachers we considered to be relatively good were the ones who could control the class because then at least, you know, it felt reasonably safe. <laughs> we were able to get some work done. Um, not that I was ever bullied. I was quite good at playing the game. I just kept my, you know, kept my head uh, under the parapet and, you know, did what everyone else did and it was all okay. Um, but did any teacher particularly inspire me at, at that time? No, no, they didn't. I had a couple of, uh, I, if you showed enthusiasm, one or two of the teachers would respond to that. I'll, I'll, I'll give them that. Um, but I can't, I don't have any um, particularly fond memories and, and no teacher at school um, who, who inspired me or, or got me moving in any particular direction. Um, I did have a teacher at university who, whose enthusiasm um, and willingness to work with me did have an impact. I mean, I, I didn't go to university. I dropped out uh, of school at year 11, halfway through, which wasn't that unusual back then because back then you, we had exams at year 10, well, they still do in the UK, um, and then you really only went on to your A-levels if you intended to, to kind of go on to university. And that wasn't something that everybody did, so... I got a job. Seven years later, when I was 24, I decided to go to university. So, of course, I was going to university having not done a great deal in the education area for some time, and I didn't do a bridging course. I went straight in. Um, and that particular lecturer was one of those. She actually said to us in our first class, because there were quite a few mature-age students in the class, she said, you know, Yes, you've got to do this essay. I can see that some of you are a bit nervous about it. If you do it beforehand, you know, before the deadline, and send it in to me, I'll have a look at it. I'll give you some hints and tips if you need them, and you, you can improve on it before the deadline. Now, as far as I know, well, I do know because she told me, only two of us took her up on that. Most people left it till the night before, as students tend to do. But she was, you know, she given the amount of extra work that would have required of her. Especially if everyone took her up on it. That, that's right. Um, and she did. She, she red penned this thing. She, you know, she gave me some pointers. She was really positive. Um, and uh, I got an HD. I never really looked back from that. Uh, I was doing a double degree initially in linguistics and... Um, psychology. I dropped psychology after the first year because of her. I really enjoyed um, the English side of things and um, she was certainly at least in part responsible for uh, my 
continuing interest in in that field and and the the first class honors that I got out of it. So, uh, yes, so she certainly had something of an impact. That's great. Um, so we're in the E It's all about reading uh, education research. I was just wondering what you follow and what you kind of have as your information diet around education. Are there any papers or magazines or people on Twitter or anything like that that you periodically uh, check into? This is almost embarrassing. Not really. Um, I, because, because I do contract work, I mean, there, there are areas that I'm interested in, um, but it's interesting that a lot of the work that goes on in, in supply and demand is grey literature. It's, it doesn't come, it's not journals on the whole. So it's quite difficult to know when that kind of thing comes out. I'm not familiar with the term grey literature. Grey literature is um, anything that is not published um, through a publishing company directly. So pretty much all government publications are, are grey. Publications by charities are grey. The, the two reports that I gave to you, uh, they're not fully grey because we have ACER does have a publishing house and, and their books are definitely not grey. But the reports we write, like the Staff in Australia School Survey report, which we provided to government, that's grey um, because it's not actually published in book form. It just goes up on the government's website. Got it. Um, a lot of that, um, a lot of the, um, the interesting data in, in my area in supply and demand actually comes out of governments, um, think tanks and others who are, you know, I mean, Grattan Institute, that's grey literature. You know, they're not publishing it through a recognised publishing house. It's their own work. It's interesting because the, the, the quality issue then comes up. It's not uncommon for a, a charity or a group to put out a glossy um, that says, you know, we surveyed this number of people and this is the results we got. And quite often as a someone who works with quantitative data, I'll sometimes look at those and say, is that representative? How, how many people did you go? I mean, there was a classic case not that long ago um, when I was looking at uh, cyber safety and cyber bullying and other things where, where I think it was Dolly Magazine or something had done a survey. Well, again, that's, it's not representative. If, if they say, well, 40% of kids have said this, well, there's, there's issues with that. First of all, we're only talking about Dolly readers, nobody else. Um, second, we're only talking about Dolly readers who actually bothered to fill in the survey. Um, it wasn't any kind of random sample. Um, so there are issues with grey literature, but a lot of it yeah. is very good. But it's hard, it's hard to find. I do use the APO. You can ask me what Indeed. that stands for, and I can't remember. Um, Australia Policy yeah. Online, um, which is run through one of the universities, I've forgotten which. Um, excellent. Um, that has a lot of the great, picks up a lot of the grey literature. Has So you can, you can look in the education side of that. I'd get various things come through from work directly. So we, we have a, a, a media watch that pulls up anything to do with education and a lot of that will also show any new reports so any reports that come out from the OECD about education um, any, anything along those lines come into my inbox other than that a lot of it is based uh, a lot of the research that I do um, generally is, is based on the work that I get um, and that's 
if that's around literature reviews, then it's a standard kind of PhD thing of, of going and finding the, the fairly recent papers and then looking at their reference list and working back from that um, or going and into one of the various databases uh, and entering in search searches for, for whatever you happen to be looking for. Cool. So just the final question uh, today, Paul, do you have any calls to action to, to listeners today? Um, I, I th there are certainly policy things that I would like to see. Um, I'd like to see what's going to take the place of the Staff in Australia School Survey. There's been some fantastic data that's come out of that, and it's something along those lines needs to continue. Aitzland government authorities are certainly aware of, uh, of that, so it'll be interesting to see where that goes. I think there needs to be more, more data. Uh, it's difficult sometimes to make policy decisions um, when you don't have enough data. I, we, we don't know how many math teachers are coming through the system. Uh, so, you know, if, if we think there might be a, a shortage of, of math teachers and science teachers, uh, and this is in, in an era where everyone is saying STEM is very important, science, technology, engineering, and maths, we don't know how many math teachers of maths are graduating every year. That, I think, is potentially a problem. If, if, because if we don't know, then we don't know... Uh, then it's hard to put in policies in place to encourage math teachers or chemistry teachers or whatever it might be, um, or chemistry graduates, um, to, to take up um, teaching positions. So I think having more data, albeit I'm a data geek, but I do actually think that having those kinds of um, information um, helps to, to make better policy. Great. Thanks so much for joining us today, Paul. Uh, I know I've learned a lot and uh, we look forward to some of your future reports. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the ERRR podcast with Paul Weldon. As always, you can find show notes with links to all of the resources that were mentioned at www.ollielovell.com. That's O-L-L-I-E-L-O-V-E-L-L.com forward slash podcast. And if you did enjoy this week's episode, I'd love for you to write a review on iTunes to help more people to find us. Thank you to the Australian College of Educators for their support in bringing this episode of the ERRR podcast together. Our next ERRR event in Melbourne will be on March 15th and we'll be speaking to literacy expert Pamela Snow on two fascinating topics. In the first, we'll be discussing research-backed approaches as to how teachers can improve their ability to have those important conversations with students in which we need to elicit a narrative such as when a critical incident has occurred at school and we need to find out just what's happened. The second paper of Pamela's that we'll be exploring is about phonic-based instruction, exploring its efficacy in the teaching of literacy. I hope you join us again for that episode of the ERRR podcast. And if you are in Melbourne, I'd really encourage you to jump onto my website, ollielovell.com forward slash podcast and register to come along to that event. Thanks for joining me for another week here on the podcast. Thanks for your time. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning. Keep learning.